Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we'll get reaction to the new provincial modeling. What metrics are being used to try to lock us down here for the next little while? We'll give you all the details on that. We'll also recap the new restrictions from a scientific perspective. Will they work? And do they make sense? And Reggie Cicchini joins us from Washington with the latest on the impeachment of Donald Trump. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, though, let's talk about what's going on here in the province of Ontario. As we anticipated, uh, Premier Doug Ford announced yesterday that we are now officially in a state of emergency and uh, suggesting that there's going to be some new restrictions about what we can and can't do because of COVID-19. This is what the Premier had to say. Effective immediately, Ontario is declaring a state of emergency. We expect this to remain in place for at least 28 days. Further, I'm issuing a stay-at-home order effective Thursday at 12.01 a.m. Under this order, everyone must stay home and only go out for essential trips to pick up groceries or go to medical appointments. And on and on it goes. The concern here, of course, is uh, is the implications of this and exactly what's going to happen to it. And to that point, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Chris Bach. Chris, of course, is a research chair of the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in modeling of infectious diseases outbreaks. He's, of course, at the University of Waterloo. Chris, good to have you back in the program today. Hope you're doing well. Oh, thanks, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hope you're doing well, too. Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, the impact in the announcement yesterday. What was your read on what you heard? Well, I, I felt that this was uh, definitely a necessary measure, uh, given uh, you know the, the factors which have been unfolding over the over the past few weeks. Not only the worsening winter wave, but also this new variant, which is seems to be highly transmissible and and will most likely spread in Ontario as well very quickly. Let's well, talk a little bit about. Yeah, yeah, we just cut out there. Well, that, that's remote broadcasting because I'm doing just what the premier said. I'm staying at home, uh, as I have been since about March 15th. Okay. I, I'm, I'm watching a lot of uh, the, the feedback I'm getting on social media on this, uh, Chris, and a lot of cynicism, as you might expect in situations like this. Uh, one of the overall and overreaching uh, co- comments I've heard is, "What's different from yesterday?" I mean, we're supposed to be doing all this stuff anyway, weren't we? Yeah, there do these. There do seem to be a number of exceptions to some of the rules if you read the fine print. Uh, so, for example, you're you're not supposed to go to your cottage if you own one, but if you but you can go if there's an emergency maintenance requirement, but that's not defined. And so, a lot of these stricter rules have exceptions that are you know sometimes up to individuals to interpret. So it's not as strict as some of the other. Measures we've seen, for example, in Victoria, Australia, where they also had a curfew mm-hmm. uh, and where schools were closed. Uh, so when you had this kind of these kind of incomplete measures with wiggle room, uh, there are problems, and you know, and that combined with the fact that we have this more transmissible variant, which is 50% more transmissible, that that's a huge amount. That gives me concern that um, the new measures will slow the virus, but we won't. See a flattening of the curve uh, anytime soon. Well, and therein lies the problem because it wasn't that the stated goal all along. And if we're not doing what we need to do to attain that goal, then then why even go through the exercise? Mm. Well, you'll still slow the virus, and you, it, these measures yeah. will prevent deaths. Uh, they just, you know, they just won't prevent as many uh, as if we had imposed stricter measures uh, uh, such as curfews, uh, and if we had uh, uh, um, if if we kept schools closed for longer. So. So everything we do helps, um, but we, you know, 
if 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 you want to see a, a flattened curve in a few weeks, this I don't think this will do it. Uh, we'll have to wait longer for that to happen under the announce uh, under the restrictions that were announced yesterday. We're at the point now, sadly, I suppose, uh, Chris, that we can actually compare. You know, what did we do last year during the first wave? And uh, because it's been almost a year now since we've uh, been under this this uh, pandemic and the, and the results of the pandemic, of course, uh, there was a bit of a shutdown. I mean, a lot of things closed down uh, last March and uh, April, and uh, it's it there, there was a decrease in the number of new cases. And, and it, there's a debate still going on, I suppose, as to whether or not it was just, well, the weather turned and people got outside and that's what did it, or was it really the, the set of restrictions that they put in place uh, so th- I, that's always going to be a debate I suppose as to what's actually going to have an impact on the numbers yeah well we can look at there are epidemiological studies where you can control for, for differences between countries and compare what they've done and so these measures definitely did make a difference but they were no doubt helped along by the warming weather that we had last summer uh, so uh, in this case we're we're, we're shutting down or, or trying to shut down with still a few months of winter ahead of us, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's working against us. Um, so, so the interventions are definitely having a benefit. We know that from the data, but uh, because we're dealing with a more transmissible variant, because there, like I said, there's some wiggle room in these uh, measures, and also uh, because of we have a few months of winter, it won't be as as quick to flatten the curve uh, as it will last time. But like I said, you know, everything that we do prevents deaths. If we do more, we prevent more deaths. That's that's how it works. There's uh, there's no question about about that part. So this is going to have an impact, but maybe we we maybe get to where we want to go, but we're not going to get there as fast as we maybe could have. That's that's right. So that's the essence of it right now. Uh, you mentioned curfew. That was a rumor, of course, that was going around late last week when the premier announced that he was going to tighten uh, the restrictions on situations like that. Quebec has already done this. And I know we always harken back to some of the other uh, places in the world, Chris, where they have had a lot more success than we have in North America about curbing the, the virus. And, uh, well, New Zealand just declared last Friday, I guess it was, that they are now COVID-free altogether. Uh, mm-hmm. But they brought the hammer down right from the get-go. They did things like curfews and, and much more restrictions, of course, on this. And I guess the classic story we heard one time, some one guy got a ticket for walking his dog around the corner and said, so you're not supposed to be out of your house. It's just not going to happen. Uh, I don't think we want to go that far. I don't think there's an appetite for it to go that far. But on the other hand, is it time at some point to start looking at some of those things and say it worked there, maybe, maybe we're going to have to do it here? Well, you know, you could argue back and forth about whether we want it, but in terms of whether or not it would be effective, yes, it would be effective. Um, there's no question about that. So, uh, it, you know, if we wanted to impose a curfew, we could do it then, and it would help reduce the cases. Of course, it would be better if we hadn't had to do it in the first place, and that would have required us to, uh, you know, I, I feel in summer we kind of squandered an opportunity. We could have gotten to COVID zero like New Zealand. We, we could have implemented uh, faster tracing and testing, uh, um, but unfortunately, I feel like we lost that opportunity. Uh, so, so absolutely, you know, the best way to deal with the pandemic is to. It, it's like Cobra Kai. If some of your listeners have watched that Netflix series, you strike first and strike hard, uh, and then it goes away, and you just you can contain it with the testing capacity you've got. Um, but we we kind of let it grow through half measures uh, and kind of incomplete uh, adherence. Uh, so you know, you know. So in the current situation, if we do want cases to go down, you know, we we probably do need to be pretty strict about it. You know, possibly yes, including curfew. Uh, isn't it sad though that we're now we're 
we're, we're quantifying our passage of time here by what's hot on Netflix this was. Remember, it was the tiger thing back last spring, and now it's the, it's the Cobra Kai thing on Netflix. That's oh, yeah, because we, we're all stuck at home and we're watching all of these things. But, yeah, but yeah, your points every night. <laughs> yeah, your point's well taken, though, because, uh, you know, as I say, they're doing this in Quebec right now, and, and is it, I, I guess the feeling a lot of people have right now is, look, at if we'd done, as you just mentioned, what we should have been doing right from the get-go, uh, we maybe not be in this situation right now. And, and contact tracing, I think, is one of the places where we, I think, as a province, have really fallen apart on this. We have not done what we were supposed to do. And that's led to the debate about, well, should the schools be open? You know, are kids actually passing this on, or, are they, you know, are they asymptomatic? And we don't know because we're not actually tracing where those the, the new cases are coming from, as well as we should anyway. That's right, yeah. And, you know, if, of course, we, you know, we can discuss when we you know, and it's unfortunate that this happened. I think the lessons we can take from it, we can apply to the future. Uh, you know, to potential a potential third wave next year, we can we can use these lessons or for future pandemics. So, so you know, if nothing else, then then uh, you know, hopefully uh, we'll be able to uh, take these lessons, and if there is a future pandemic, we we can apply them and uh, get get to zero levels of infection next time. Um, but um, yeah, and this wasn't even rocket science, I have to say. So this has been known for for uh, a long time that you know the best way to uh, control a pandemic for which you don't have a vaccine yet is rapid testing, tracing, testing and tracing and isolation. Um, so our failures are more failures of logistics and political will, and and uh, um, the, you know this this wasn't like we, we we didn't know what to do. We did know what to do. We just didn't implement that knowledge. Well, and this is the thing I'm frustrated about because, I mean, they told us right, well, a year ago, you know, wash your hands a lot. Okay, we can do that. All right, uh, wear the mask. At first it wasn't wear the mask, but now it has been, and social distancing and things of this nature. But they always harped on us about contact tracing. And, the, you know, the government came up with an app about this too. And I, 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 I know there's a lot of people that haven't used that yet because they're concerned about privacy and things of that nature. But that seems to be, now in hindsight, one of the, the, the failings here uh, that's put us in this conundrum right now that, uh, that it, I, I, even a guy like yourself, I mean, the information that you can uh, extract from the data is only as good as the data you get, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Um, and the contact tracing was a particular problem. I think with the app there was some miscommunication about the privacy concerns. I've actually yeah. been studying this app for my research, and uh, it's very difficult. Well, it's actually impossible to uh, glean individual information from it because it's not stored centrally. The only thing that's stored centrally are these keys uh, that are regenerated every 15 minutes. Uh, and uh, so so they can't figure out, um, uh, you know, uh, they don't collect this information centrally. They don't know who it is. Um, all the app does is, is is it pings you if if you've been within someone else who runs the app over a certain uh, uh, over a certain duration of time. So so they really uh, worked hard to protect privacy with COVID alert, uh, but I guess the trust isn't there or the messaging wasn't there to uh, to give people reassurance. But you know, digital contact tracing could have been a huge game changer, and even just normal contact tracing, like going to restaurants, as I might have mentioned before. You know, making sure people put their names down, and, and then yeah. on our end, you know, putting our real name down and our real number um, uh, would have been helpful for contact tracing. And then public health needs to act on that data when, when they've got it, and they have to have the capacity to be able to act on that data. 
And, and again, as you mentioned, I mean, that ship has already sailed. I, I guess it's never too late to start doing it, but at the same time, we've, I think, missed an opportunity because the places that we've just talked about that have done a pretty good job of, of knocking the curve down uh, started doing all that, and they and that was an essential part of their program and of, of their strategy, I suppose. And uh, with the, our, our, our governments talked the talk, but they didn't really walk the walk, did they? Um, I, I, think that's, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, and also, you know, contact tracing, Yes, you really want to be able to use it to contain the outbreak from the start. But even if you do it during a, 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 a widespread epidemic like we have now, even if it can't on its own bring it under control, it can still help reduce cases. So contact tracing is still useful even right now. Um, it's just that it's too late for us to contain it, obviously. Um, uh, but but it's, it's still useful um, in combination with other measures like social distancing and hand washing, etc. All these things work together. Uh, to reduce cases, and they're and they're most effective when they're applied in combination. How soon are we going to see a difference in this? I mean, because we've always you know talked about the quarantine period, the fourteen day period, uh, and there's a debate there too. You know, is it really fourteen days or is it? But just to be on the safe side, uh, it's fair to say I think that a lot of the numbers that we saw about the number of new cases here in Ontario are probably from two weeks ago, from the Christmas holiday season, uh, as opposed to like yesterday or something like that. So I mean, he's he wants to do this for th- four weeks. I think he said yesterday. Uh, so is it going to be uh, mid to late February before we see any sort of a, 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 a well, hopefully a, a decrease in these numbers to show that this is being effective? Yeah, so that two-week thing is, is pretty consistent, you know, give or take, a, uh, um, maybe, you know, maybe five days or so. Um, but the two-week lag is, is pretty consistent in, in all the data I've seen from various uh, countries similar to Canada and Canada. Um, now, the complication is that we have this new uh, mutant strain, which mm-hmm. which spreads very quickly. And in other countries where where it's more or less taken over and has, has become the do- and has dominated the COVID landscape, like the UK and Ireland, these countries have seen a large and sudden spike in cases over a short period of time. And that mutant is now present in Ontario. So, so yes, two weeks to see an impact, but uh, and, and there will be uh, benefits. But we, we have this virus mutant which is acting in the other direction, which, which might obscure it. Um, so, you know, the situation would be much, much worse if we both had the mutant and didn't do anything. Um, uh, but um, it's possible that in two weeks we'll still see cases rising because, uh, you know, our efforts are working, they're slowing things down, but the mutant is, the effects of the mutant virus are layered on top of that. And so overall, we'll st- we might still be seeing an increase in cases in two weeks, unfortunately. Um, it just depends on how fast the mutant spreads. Um, but, but like I said, the, the epidemiological studies are, are clear that, you know, these efforts do help. Um, we just may not see a flattening of the curve in two weeks. I, I got about a minute left, but I have to ask you because you mentioned about the vaccine and, uh, and and the rollout of the program. It's been a month now here in Canada uh, since they started vaccinating. The stat I saw this morning is, uh, I, I guess, a little uh, depressing. Only one percent of the population has been vaccinated so far, and uh, I believe the number I saw had we seventy five or eighty percent before the, 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 the you know we could feel comfortable that, that the herd immunity and things like that that we've talked about would come into play. Uh, what kind of an impact is this going to have? I mean, I, the, we still I, I think are hoping that by the maybe September or so, most people that want the vaccine will have had at least one shot, if not two, by then. Uh, but your point's well taken. This is not going to eradicate the virus, is it? No, um, but the silver lining uh, is that uh, because we're prioritizing elderly first and because there was, they, they suffer the highest rates of death from COVID, that 
uh, even if cases continue growing uh, into February and March, uh, we'll be preventing more and more deaths by vaccinating more and more elderly. Um, so, so, so that's kind of the silver lining here is that, you know, deaths will hopefully decline before cases do. Uh, but we need to get those vaccine out and get them into the long-term care facilities and the elderly living in the community, and we have to vaccinate them as fast as possible. You know, we've got vaccine sitting in the freezers not being distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, again, that was another uh, avoidable mistake. Um, and, uh, and, you know, our government needs to do everything it can to correct that and get those vaccine out of the freezers and, and uh, administered to, to our elderly as soon as possible and then later on to, to the rest of us. Absolutely. Well, and we're going to track that as we go along, too. Uh, a lot of confusion about what's going on here. Chris, always great to have you on the program to give us some perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Have a good day. Take care. We'll talk soon. Chris Bach, of course, from the University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the points that I think that hasn't been paid a whole lot of attention, but does, though, uh, need to be talked about at great length, of course, is the impact that this uh, pandemic is having on the health profession in general, and specifically uh, places like hospitals. And uh, it's a very dire circumstance. Uh, Global's Dave Woodard has some information on that. A sobering press conference from the Ontario Science Table and Dr. Adelstein Brown, who says we're at a tipping point. If we do not follow these restrictions, COVID-19 will continue to aggressively spread before vaccines have the chance to protect us. He says if nothing is done and increases continue, the number of daily cases could skyrocket. If we do hit the 5% level of growth, which is quite possible, we'll be looking at over 20,000 cases a day. And if we get into a a darker situation with 7% growth, we'll be looking at over 40,000 cases per day. In addition to that projection, Dr. Brown says we could see deaths double from 50 to 100, with ICU admissions going up to 1,000 by the end of February. Dave Woodard at Global News. So that's uh, that's the, the groundwork for this, and that's one of the things I think we have to keep in mind. And, uh, of course, the companion story to that, of course, is the impact this is having on uh, ICU units in different hospitals around the province as well. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Dr. Lauren Small, Infectious Disease Specialist with Trillium Health Partners. Doctor, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh- Listen, unless we work in the health profession, uh, a lot of us just, you know, out of sight, out of mind. We don't think about the hospitals and impact. I, I know quite a few people, the doctors and, and people that are nurses and, and some of the facilities. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, some of the stories I've heard are quite frightening about the impact that it's having. I know there's a story in Hamilton uh, just this morning on the news uh, that all the ICUs here are at capacity here in the city. And, and and when we hear doctor talking about the number of new cases that could happen if we don't pay attention to what we're doing here and follow these restrictions, uh, the consequences here can be well dramatic to say the least but uh, it, it could be catastrophic if we just don't get our act together here yeah i mean i i i work at one of the uh, most impacted uh, hospitals in the province and um we're at capacity or over capacity we are moving patients uh, to other hospitals at times um and um you know the icu bed um situation is critical um, and um, it, it, it really is, um, you know, we keep hearing words about being on the brink, um, but, I, you know, I think we're actually, you know, we're at the brink and, and we're already over the brink. So uh, it, really, it really is, the pressure really is uh, dire. 
there's some naivety, I think, that's going on here in the general public as well, which is maybe one of the reasons why we're not doing the things we're supposed to doing uh, uh, vis-a-vis, you know, social distancing and things of this nature. Uh, because an awful lot of people I've seen, especially in some of the comments on social media, doctor, are saying, oh, come on, not everybody that gets COVID goes to the hospital. Let's not, let's be realistic about this. And, and that's true, statistically. But if you test positive and if you contract the virus, you don't know how it's going to impact your body, do you? Yeah, I mean, it's actually, you know, it's quite surprising. Um, you know, we, we see people coming into the hospital that you would expect to be really, really sick, you know, older people, and they actually look, they look pretty good. Uh, and then you see young people who are, and when I say young people, you know, anybody under my age is young. So, you know, people, people in their 30s and 40s, um, who are, you know, have no medical problems and, um, and, and they come in and they look awful and, and they end up in the intensive care unit. Uh, so it, it, it's, you know, you can't always predict who, who is going to have the bad outcome. And, and we've heard stories about hospitals, well, a lot of them, of course, from south of the border, since that's where a lot of us seem to get our media information from, uh, about doctors and hospitals actually having to make choices and saying, well, this person gets treated, this one doesn't, because we ain't able to do something for them. Uh, and, and they say, well, thank God it's not happening here. But we're reaching that point, aren't we, in some facilities? Yeah, like you said, fortunately, uh, we're not quite there. We're, we're, we're managing to keep up. Um, you know, we have to do some shuffling here and there to make sure everybody gets the best care possible but we're certainly not at at a point where we're we're saying you know we 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 cannot offer care to this person because we just don't have the capacity but um but certainly there there is ethical uh work uh that has been done around that or is being done uh because we you know we will reach that point uh, certainly not business as usual in the facilities, doctor, but uh, there was a, a lot of concern a year ago during the first wave and the shutdown that we had last spring about uh, canceling what they called elective surgeries. Uh, how are the hospitals handling that right now with the, the, the caseload that you're getting right now? Uh, people that, uh, that maybe have scheduled, could be joint replacements, any number of different surgeries like that, are they still on or are we at that point now where they may be getting a phone call said, not yet? Yeah, so, so the way that works, I mean, it, it can go two ways. Um, you know, we we do get direction uh, from from the Ministry of Health uh, and Ontario Health um, with what our capacity for uh, for those kinds of procedures should be, and, and that's based on what's happening in the province and in our area. Uh, and also, we 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 um, we accommodate based on what's going on in the hospital. Um, so there is actually directive uh, now. Uh, from from the ministry uh, to to reduce uh, elective surgery and and um, some of those elective surgeries are starting to um, to ramp down. We never made it back up to a hundred percent after the first wave. Uh, we were close, but never up at a hundred percent. And we're we're we tend to be uh, trending back down now um, towards uh, towards around fifty percent. Doctor, what's, give me your, your read on, on what you heard from the Premier yesterday. Obviously, what we've tried previously uh, doesn't seem to be working. The numbers are going up a lot further than we thought they were going to, notwithstanding the fact that we were warned that a second wave might be more 
problematic than the first wave, and that's starting to actually come to pass. But but the, the new restrictions that they're talking about that is it going to have an impact? If if and, and I'm going to say this all on the uh, that's on the premise that we we start listening, we start obeying, we start doing what we're supposed to do. What kind of an impact is this going to have? Yeah, you know, so if you go back and, and look at, at, you know, the first wave or even before the first wave, there was a lot of talk about having to go in and out of these lockdowns uh, to control measures. Uh, and at the time, it, you know, people accepted that and it kind of made sense to people. But when it came to reality, I think it, it, it had less acceptance. So we did what we had to do in the first wave. And I, I think if you look at that and you look at the data, uh, it, we did show that it actually had a, a, an impact. Um, and then when things started to kind of, we started seeing the writing on the wall for the second wave, it was a little harder to implement that. Um, you know, we were, we were trying to protect the economy. We were trying to protect retail businesses, uh, which was certainly justifiable. Um, and these measures were coming into place. They weren't lockdown measures. They were you know, kind of piecemeal, uh, unintegrated measures. Uh, and, you know, it, it, they just did not have the impact that a, a true lockdown would have. Um, you know, if you squeeze the balloon on one end, it's going to blow up at the other end. Mm -hmm. So unless you're, you've got a, 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 a fulsome plan uh, for these measures, it's not going to have the desired impact. So, you know, up until, well, up until what's going to happen tomorrow, I would not really consider what was happening a true lockdown. Um, like I said, it, they were kind of piecemeal measures to try to get things uh, a little bit better. Uh, and clearly, uh, it just it wasn't doing the job. It, it, it just wasn't enough uh, to get where we need to be. Um, I do think if if we get the buy-in we need uh, when, when things kick in uh, and we go back to how people responded in the first wave, it will have an impact. It's going to take time because we're already beyond, uh, we're, uh, far beyond where we were when, the, when we started the lockdown uh, in, the, in the first wave. So it's going to take a long time for that to kick in. Hopefully with vaccination and with the lockdown, we will see an impact. But I think, I think what people really need to realize is that in that first wave, when the measures came into place, people responded, and, and, and people should be commended and proud of, of what they did in the first wave, because that was, that was truly a, a community effort um, that set us on the, on the right track. Uh, and, I, and I think I know people are tired, and I know, I know there's a lot of fatigue, but if people can get into that mindset again, uh, and be truly supportive and get and get behind it we we can we can get back to where we were well i think part of the reason for that uh, just harking back to the shows we did last march and people were scared i think that's why there was there was compliance because they didn't know much about this thing and they thought my god if i get this thing i could die i i've got a pre-existing condition or my you know my father does or something like that and and uh, you know that that kind of made us stay in line i think there's a lot of as you say almost a nonchalant attitude to this now that said look it's been around for a year i'm not sick i don't know anybody that got sick so uh, you know why don't we bend the rules a little bit and that's uh, that's probably one of the reasons why we're in the conundrum of we're in now yeah absolutely um and, and you know people maybe don't know you know a direct person that's had it uh and and you know they've been out doing their things and they haven't gotten sick um and and so there is 
to some extent, a false sense of security. Uh, and now with the vaccine, I think people are kind of relying on the fact that the vaccine is coming. Uh, and, and perhaps there's a sense that, you know, they don't have to be doing as good a job as they were. Um, and, and, you know, it really, it truly is a false sense of security. And even though they're, they may be on an individual level, they're not seeing what's going on. Um, there's a lot going on and, and there's, there's a lot of people dying uh, every day. Doctor, thank you so much for your, uh, your time today and your perspective on this. We uh, need to keep hammering the message home, and hopefully uh, it's going to start resonating. We'll see a, a reduction in some of these numbers. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Great. Thank you for having me. Take care. Dr. Lauren Small, infectious disease specialist with the Trillium Health Partners, reiterating what we've been told from uh, the medical profession from day one, uh, that you got to follow the rules, and uh, that's the only way these numbers are going to get down. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. South of the border, while the backlash to last week's violence in the U.S. Capitol is growing, the House of Representatives is now expected to vote today on whether to impeach U.S. President Donald Trump for a second time. Reporter Elizabeth Schultz says Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who is the third highest-ranking Republican in the House, is now in favor of impeachment. Cheney is now among other House GOP members and more than 200 Democrats seeking to impeach Trump for willfully inciting violence against the government of the United States. We're going to walk down to the Capitol... And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. The president is standing by those comments he made January 6th. People thought that what I said was totally appropriate. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know what people he's talking about anyway. So uh, it's uh, it's becoming another mess down there. And, uh, well, the vote probably is going to happen. Uh, one of the, uh, the interesting twists to the story, though, are the number of people like Liz Cheney uh, who all of a sudden are being supportive of this. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is a Washington reporter and uh, a producer, of course, uh, for Global News down in Washington on the Beltway. <clears throat> Reggie, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you back with us again. Good morning. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Liz Cheney and a few other Republicans. I mean, uh, the, the the first impeachment, and now we're getting into this one, the first one or the second one, but uh, the, the vote in the House of Representatives failed pretty much along party lines. Uh, a few Republicans are jumping ship right now. Does that surprise you? Uh, it, well, I mean, it surprises me in that, you know, it's curious as to what took so long uh, to have some Republicans finally break ranks with, with the president. And, you know, what was considered to be, you know, that line that the president would cross. We've all been waiting for that to happen. Uh, and this ultimately appears to be it. What's interesting now is the numbers, how they're slowly trickling out one, then two, then three, hearing it could be upwards of possibly 15 or 20 by the time we get to the vote on this later today. I think what's more interesting, Bill, is the fact that we're now seeing a break in ranks in the Republican Senate, uh, likely uh, and notably, uh, including Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who is uh, kind of vocally pushing himself away from President Trump. That surprised me as well. And, and your point's well taken. I mean, uh, the, the Democrats do have a, a majority in the House right now. So, I mean, that, it was pretty much a, a done deal that it was going to pass in the House uh, one way or another. But it looks as if the margin is going to be significantly larger because of the, the Republicans uh, that may jump on side. But the Senate's a different story uh, because they were pretty adamant about this. But uh, it's, a, it's a different Mitch McConnell we've seen over the last seven or ten days, isn't it, Reggie? It is, and that's because this is a Republican Senate leader who has prided himself on, uh, you know, believing in the Constitution, believing in uh, how democracy should go forward, but, you know, above all, believing in what his majority would be able to do. And this president cost him that majority. It cost him an ability to continue to pack uh, federal courts with judges who will be on a conservative side. And this is a big deal for Mitch McConnell, but also just having been in politics 
for the number of decades that he has, to be able to see what President Trump incited his own uh, followers to do uh, was simply a bridge too far. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's going to be one of those moments we have to wait and see if the sheep follow the shepherd, uh, how many Republican senators might follow Mitch McConnell's lead if he ultimately decides to vote guilty against President Trump. But the simple fact that McConnell uh, is vocally open to starting a trial ASAP to try and kind of purge President Trump from the GOP, uh, this is a remarkable development. Well, especially because of the, some of the comments. And I know well, you know a lot of people were giving him uh, platitudes and, and, and credit for the speech he made, of course, to do with the Electoral College vote uh, when he made that speech, of course, in, in the Senate a week or so ago. And, and that was remarkable in and of itself. Uh, but, but for him to actually be consistent in this and now starting to go to the next level, uh, it, it, I guess one of the questions a lot of folks are asking, Reggie, is uh, how much sway does he have with the other senators right now? Well, I mean, it's a good question, uh, and it's it's still to be seen, because, look, the Republican Party is fractured, uh, and it will be interesting to see how many of these Trump Republicans in the Senate uh, were Trump Republicans solely because they were fearful of what the president could do while he was in power, and if that could impact their political future. And once President Trump is gone, or if there's an opportunity to clear him from the party, does that bring some of those Republicans back in line to where the old school GOP uh, used to be? which is where the Republican Senate is going, to, uh, rather, the Republicans are going to need to be in the Senate, considering they've lost their majority. And if they want to get anything accomplished, they're going to have to work with Democrats uh, and with President Trump gone if they're able to convict him. If they're able to evict him, we'll have to see what happens to that line in the Republicans uh, and, and what side people are standing on. Well, especially uh, when you start to, you know, do, do the head count. I mean, obviously, people like Cruz and, and Holly are going to do what they're going to do. They've they've pretty much uh, decided exactly where they're going to stand on this. Uh, you you know, a guy like Mitt Romney obviously is probably going to be in favor of impeachment. He, he's never been a big fan of the presidents to begin with. Uh, but it's the, there's, there's a whole group of people there, and uh, you've crunched the numbers. I know in the reporting you, you were giving us yesterday, Reggie, you were talking about the number of senators, Republican senators especially, that would have to come on side for this to be effective. It was. 16 or 17 Republicans would have to change sides here? It, it is. It's 17 that would have to jump okay. to the Republic, uh, to the Democrat side in order to do this. And somebody to watch is somebody like Lindsey Graham. He kind of goes with whichever direction the wind is blowing. He'll call out President Trump and then join President Trump uh, on a tour of the southern border wall uh, in Mexico, uh, rather in Texas. So these are the people that we have to watch, the ones who have not been afraid to stand up to President Trump while at the same time living in the fear of standing up to President Trump. Let's talk about the logistics, if we could. Uh, those of us that still have uh, memories of the first impeachment, uh, we remember it was a rather long, drawn-out process, even in the House, uh, before it got to the Senate and that trial that happened. Uh, and uh, my understanding is that if the vote is happening today, they're, they're basically, uh, this is kind of fast-tracking, I would think, isn't it, Reggie? They're not going to go through a trial. In other words, they don't have to prove this. They, I think the evidence is, is pretty much there for everybody to see, especially with the articles that they've mentioned about the speech that he made a week ago today and, uh, and of course, the phone call to the uh, Attorney General in Georgia, uh, which is also mentioned in the articles of impeachment on this, too. So this is basically just, I know they're going to argue about this for a while today, but this, you, are you feeling pretty confident that there will be a vote sometime today, later on this afternoon? Yeah, according to what we're hearing from people inside the House, uh, is that they fully intend to move this to a vote potentially by late afternoon or early evening. And according to uh, Democratic Majority Leader uh, Steny Hoyer, 
He said that he wants to transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate immediately. Remember last impeachment, they held off for nearly a month because they were going to try to gauge what the trial would look like in the hands of Mitch McConnell. If they are uh, insistent on transmitting these immediately, that could potentially tie Mitch McConnell's hands or at least force his hands to act on, on what he's been talking about and getting this trial going uh, you know, quicker than uh, when Senate returns on, on January 19th. I think what's important to remember here, though, is when you're listening to these arguments today on the House floor, Democrats obviously pushing for this to be abbreviated, trying to hold President Trump accountable. Republicans are pushing back, saying that impeachment is only going to divide this nation further. And what they're essentially saying is they can't trust President Trump's supporters uh, to deal with the fact that President Trump may have been lying to them, and they fear that impeachment of the president to hold him accountable is going to lead to more violence. This, this is simply what they're condoning by saying, let's not impeach him because Trump supporters can't be trusted. What's the, uh, the, 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 uh, the mindset right now for the, the Republicans uh, you've mentioned, but the, for the Democratic side, because there was some hesitation, Reggie, that you reported over the weekend about some Democrats saying maybe we shouldn't rush into this because uh, obviously with Biden being uh, inaugurated, uh, well, a week from today, uh, he has an agenda. And if the Senate is tied up with an impeachment hearing, nothing else is going to get done. Is, is, has that been addressed? Are they concerned about that still? I think that was initial concern. But, you know, the more we're hearing from Mitch McConnell saying that he may be interested in holding, uh, you know, a speedy, expedient trial, uh, potentially before President Trump leaves office, this would free up the Senate to continue on with the Biden agenda once he's inaugurated, uh, because they could realistically get these articles transmitted over to them and potentially hold, if Mitch McConnell uses the powers that he's allotted, uh, they could hold the trial on Friday, on Saturday or next Monday. Uh, and potentially have a vote uh, to convict President Trump. That could all take place before inauguration, which would clear the slate for what President-elect Biden wants to do and ultimately give Democrats that opportunity to say, look, we held the president accountable and we have now made it easier for Joe Biden to get his agenda going forward. Uh, one of the players in this, I guess, has all of a sudden become not much of a player, of course, is Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, it was a week ago that he was hunkered down, of course, uh, someplace on, in, on Capitol Hill there, Reggie, of course, because of the onslaught and the uh, the attack that happened at the Capitol building. Uh, we, we heard, and you mentioned again in your reporting on the weekend, that he and the President didn't talk for almost a week. I guess they met yesterday at the White House, finally, and uh, they seem to have patched everything up, and, and Pence seems to be on side once again. Yeah, I mean, look, how many times can we say uh, an action is remarkable? But, you know, when we heard from President, uh, Vice President Pence last night, again, in a letter to Speaker Pelosi, saying that he did not think that impeachment uh, and use of the 25th uh, w was going to do anything to kind of heal uh, a country that needs to be, uh, you know, unified. Uh, again, it goes to show uh, that, that sometimes party loyalty and loyalty to a president uh, supersedes what, you know, potentially could be the best move for the country. This is a president who is being accused of insurrection. Uh, and Vice President Mike Pence was an eyewitness to exactly what happened uh, following what President Trump said. And he is still saying, uh, again, following that line of Republicans, that they can't trust Trump supporters, that if they do something to the president, it's only going to lead things you know, to, to get worse. It really is astounding to listen to these Republicans continue to march uh, lockstep in behind President Trump. Uh, one of the subtexts of this whole thing, of course, we just mentioned about Senator uh, Cruz and Senator Hawley, uh, who were the masters of this whole process, of course, and the ones that were perpetrating a, a lot of the myths uh, and inaccurate in information that Trump is talking about, Reggie. Uh, there have been a lot of calls right now for them to be actually removed from the Senate. Is, is, is that just partisan uh, blabber at this stage, or is there actually something going on there? 
Well, I mean, look, uh, corporate donors are walking away from the Republican Party uh, in droves. You're lo- they're losing people like Disney, American Express, Airbnb, Walmart. These are cash cows for the Republican Party. Uh, and if that money dries up because of the actions of someone like Ted Cruz or someone like Josh Hawley or the actions and words of President Trump, this could be uh, a make or break moment inside the Republican Party. We all know it. Nobody wants to admit it. Money talks in Washington. And if you don't have the backing of billions of dollars coming into your party, this poses a significant problem when you're up for re-election because you don't have the finances that say the independents of the Democrats are going to have running against you. Uh, and this could be, you know, put aside politics, put aside everything else, money could be the ultimate motivator here. Well, that's not the first time you've, you've used a phrase like that about people in Washington. Uh, money obviously is going to be a motivator in this, but so is political ambition. And I know, uh, because we, you and I have talked about this actually since Trump was inaugurated four years ago, uh, that there's always a concern about the, the sway that he has within the Republican Party specifically, and, and not just, I mean, on Capitol Hill, but I mean right across the country. Uh, is the feeling now that uh, that once he leaves office a week from today, that that, that, that impact that he's going to have, that that, that control that he has over those people is going to diminish i mean the, the MAGA people are always going to be with them but let's face it uh not everybody of those 71 million who voted for donald trump are MAGA folks they some are just diehard republicans that figured that's the guy uh do, do the republicans feel a little more emboldened now that they did two weeks ago it's very possible i mean look they, they see president trump as toxic to the party uh, and if it winds up uh, you know with president trump being found guilty uh, and kind of purged from the White House, uh, this is motivation for Republicans to just walk away from whatever President Trump is saying or use President Trump's own kind of reality that he's facing right now against him uh, when they're running, whether it's in two, four or six years from now. Uh, and, you know, if, if President Trump ultimately becomes, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, fallen by this impeachment and he's no longer able to run for federal office if they hold that second vote, uh, that may give uh, fuel for these Republicans to say, why are you listening to a president uh, or a former president who can't even you know, stand inside a federal, a federal office anymore? Th- th- there's a lot that can happen between now and the next election. Uh, and it's simply going to be who has the will to stand up to President Trump, especially if he doesn't have something like social media to continue his voice going forward. Yeah, because a lot of the arguments, and we just heard from uh, Jim Jordan, of course, uh, the, the Trump uh, acolyte, of course, in the in the in the House, uh, talking about party loyalty uh, with his comments, and and that's something I guess they're going to try to hold over some of the senators that may be uh, jumping ship on situations like this, and and which I guess is going to be an important factor, isn't it, Reggie? Let's face it. I mean, I, I don't think it's not a secret that people like Ted Cruz and and Hawley and and well, for that matter, Mike Pence are all rumored to be wanting to run uh, as the Republican nominee four years from now, and they want to keep that base on their side. They do want to keep the base on their side. And remember, these people were not sycophants of President Trump the entire time uh, that they had been in politics. These people were all vocal opponents of Donald Trump when he was just a candidate, uh, you know, because they were trying to best him and take that job. And if they have political aspirations, if they're able to overcome the kind of mountain of anger that could be uh, resting underneath them, if President Trump is able to keep his hand in the mix of the Republican base, uh, they will simply turn on President Trump again, because at the end of the day, they will not need to be loyal to somebody who was pushed out of office or who they think that they can do a better job of uh, in bringing the Republican base back together. Look, this is a fragmented party right now uh, that lost their complete stronghold on Washington. I don't think that there's going to be any Republican who wants to tie themselves to the president that's responsible for that. It's uh, going to be a very active day in Washington, and of course we'll be watching for your reporting on this later on today, Reggie, as always. Thanks so much for the time today. Great having you on the program again. Thank you.
Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, a reporter for Global News down in Washington in the Beltway. And as I say, a pretty active day uh, with a vote expected and probably a vote that is going to vote to impeach him. Let's face it, as we mentioned, uh, the Democrats do control the House, and there are a number of Republicans uh, that have decided that uh, it's about time to get rid of Trump as well. By the way, the, the subtext, as Reggie reported earlier today, is it's not just the impeachment itself, because if it does pass in the, in the Senate as well, the second motion that they're talking about bringing forward right now would bar Trump from ever seeking public office once again, which is uh, something they can't do unless they impeach him first. So there's a method to their situation here, what they're trying to get done. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.